Hello, and welcome to another edition of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. Here from Grand Rapids, Michigan, I am your host, Kevin Weber. Thanks for joining me. As usual, I've got several segments for you today. I'm going to talk about responding to players, talk about getting paid, or when you don't get paid, that is. I'll do a little segment on uniforms and equipment. I'm going to talk about the, the new Major League Baseball rule changes for this 2020 season. Uh, we'll do an umpire spotlight, as we always do. Dead ball umpire Bill Deneen. And also, we're going to talk about social media guidelines. Something that uh, definitely needs to be in the back of our minds whenever we're on our phones or on our computers and tablets and everything else. Because like one of my assigners, Rich Fetchett, says, silence can't be quoted. Something to keep in mind while you're on the ball field and when you're off the ball field. So make sure those AirPod Pros are working well and sit back for another episode of The Hammer and Umpire Podcast. Well, the last few weeks we've talked about how we uh, talk to players and coaches. Um, We've focused on coaches the last couple of weeks, and this week I'm going to talk about players. So if umpires can get players on their side, especially catchers and pitchers, uh, they're going to solve a lot of problems that they might have, catchers being the number one and most important player you have to deal with out there, especially when you're working the plate. When I'm on the bases... I'm not talking to players. I know some guys are chit-chatty out there. I've been taught not to be that way, and I'm just naturally not that way. I'm not saying I won't say good play to somebody if they make a great play. I'm not saying I won't say something here and there. Like in a game, I might say, you know, it's cold or, you know, man, it looks like it's going to rain or something like that. I might make some passing comment like that if something like that strikes me, but very infrequently do I do that. When I'm uh, working first base uh, in two-man, um, I don't really talk to the first base men or the first base coach um, unless they say something to me. If they come over there and introduce themselves and shake my hand or whatever, then I'm more than happy to do that. And I tell them what my name is and say good luck or something. And I'll do that with first base coach. If they don't want to talk to me, I'm fine with that. <laughs> I don't talk to them. Um, I don't go out of my way to do that. At all. I know some guys do. Maybe that's a personal preference, but I figure, you know, it's kind of up to them how they want to interact with me. I don't care if I don't say anything to them or anybody on the field the entire game. I really don't. I'll answer questions if they have a legitimate question. If they say something, you know, in some friendly manner, I will respond back to it. Um, You know, I'll smile or nod my head or say something if it's appropriate. I don't say anything to them while a play is going on. That's for sure. And uh, I try to avoid all the contact that I can. When there's something going on between innings or there's a pitching change, I do what my responsibilities are on that situation as far as what I'm supposed to do with other umpires, getting the pitcher in and those kind of things. But then I stand as far away as I can within reason from players. If they're like in a little huddle somewhere uh, on the ball field, you know, by a base or, you know, somewhere else on the the field, I do not – I stand on the other side. I, I, I try to avoid any of that kind of stuff. 
Um, I've been taught to do that, and I find that if I don't hear something uh, or they're not talking to me, then um, usually better things happen. Plus, I don't want to appear like I'm siding with them or I'm buddy-buddy with them because the other team is going to see that kind of stuff. But anyway, um, more importantly, the plate umpire. You know, after each team gets their warm-ups in, if you're taking some pitches and seeing some pitches, I always do that. I, I take pitches um, with each catcher to get a feel for the opening opening pitchers and uh, also just to try to make sure I'm getting my strike zone down and my timing down. And I introduce myself. I, I say wh- what my name is. I shake their hand, um, you know, tell them it's nice to meet them and uh, take some pitches behind them. That's about it. I might ask, you know, what grade they're in or something like that um, if, if it seems appropriate. But otherwise, just knowing their name, that's the most important thing to me. I want to know their first name, and I'm going to refer to them by their first name because those guys, those two catchers are out there to protect me. Um, I might say good luck or something. If they make a nice throw down to second base or something, I might say, hey, nice, nice shot or something like that. I might say something like that. That's about it. I'm not talking to them about anything else, um, and I don't say anything about – my strike zone, you know, what I try to call, because what I try to call is the real strike zone. That's that's my goal, you know, so hopefully that's what they realize. And and that's it. I'm just worrying about myself and getting my timing down and making sure I remember their name in case, you know, if they make a nice block in front of me uh, and, and protect me, which um, they frequently do, I always say, hey, nice job. Thank you. Appreciate that. Nice block. Way to shift. I, I say those kind of things. That's it. Because I do appreciate that. I mean, I, I know their coaches and their teammates appreciate that they made a nice block. But I certainly um, appreciate it because I didn't get hit in the arm or the elbow or whatever, or get hit in the face or something like that. So that's about it. Um, if they get chipping with me on some pitchers or something, then I certainly am not afraid to put them in their place. But uh, I like to be on um, uh, an even keel with them uh, throughout the game and not be all buddy-buddy with them. That's kind of how I try to handle that. Especially early in the game, I, I frequently will, uh, just to my catcher, uh, I might give some location on why I might have called something a ball. Like, you know, I had that out a little bit. It's always a little bit to me, even if it was a lot. I always say it's a little bit so that they think that it's close, especially if a, a hitter might hear it. Um, if I had a ball that was inside and it was on, like, the batter's box line, for example, I say, I got that's in. Uh, and I'll say, yeah, I had it on the line. That way, you know, they know where I'm calling them. I mean, they might agree or disagree that it was on the line or not, but they know that I think it was. So that that pitch, if they throw it again, that's what I'm going to probably call it. So I give them a little little hint on that, or if, you know, ball's a little bit low, I got, I got that down a bit, you know. I got that up a little bit, you know, that kind of stuff. So they kind of know. Uh, I, I just kind of do that sometimes early on in the game if it seems appropriate. Um, I don't do it always on close pitches, but um, just so they get a feel for my strike zone if they haven't worked with me. Um, that's kind of the way I've done it the last few years. Um, I've kind of developed that as I've called balls and strikes. It seems to work pretty well. I want catchers to know that I'm going to call every strike I can, and I want them to have a feel for my strike zone so that whenever I do call it a ball or a strike, that they pretty much knew that's what I was going to call it. And hopefully their pitcher also feels that way as well. He knows that if he throws a pitch in a certain spot, um, consistently I'll call either a ball or a strike. Every time. That, that's what I want them to think, and I'm just consistent. That's the number one priority that we have out there. Um, doesn't mean that another guy might not have called it something else, but as long as we call it the same thing every time, that's what they're hoping for. Now, I mentioned batters a little bit, and sometimes you'll get a hitter that will ask you, um, like they might have swung at a pitch, hey, would that have been a strike? I always answer, 
honestly with them. I don't give them some smart aleck comment like, well, you know, well, you know, was that a strike? Well, it is now since you swung it. <laughs> I don't say something like that to them, though that is kind of funny if somebody does that. But yeah, I'll, I'll tell them what I would have had. Uh, I, I might say, yeah, that, that that was a little bit out. And like I say, I always say a little bit because I want them to think that I might have called it the other way, you know, um, even if it's, you know, unless it's a gross miss or something like that, right? Um, if they ask, hey, is that as far out as you go? If it is, that, that's what I tell them. Or, you know, if I go out a little more, I'm just going to be honest with them. I, I want them, the hitters, to know that I'm consistent as well. That's what I'm trying to establish as well, that I'm going to call the same pitch a strike every single time on them and their, and their teammates and for both sides. So I just try to be honest with them as well. If they do ask a question in a respectful way, and this, is, this goes for catchers and, and batters, you know, if they're respectful about it, I'll give them a reasonable answer. If it seems like they're trying to argue balls and strikes, then I'm going to take care of that business right then. We all realize that the batters and the catchers and the pitcher too, but particularly the, the hitters and the catchers go back and talk to their teammates and talk to their coach and coaches about what the home plate umpire is doing and what they think of the strike zone. And that's the information that they gather. So you want to, um, hopefully you are consistent, and you want the message to be that goes back to the dugouts, to each dugout, that this guy's consistent, this is what he's calling. So that is an indirect way that you are communicating with the coaches and the other players on the bench uh, when you're interacting with the catchers and the hitters. Also, like I mentioned before, you know, if, if a player, particularly a catcher that you're working with, makes a, a tremendous play, I think it's all right to, um, to tell them that. Tell them, hey, great play, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, you don't need to be doing that on just like routine plays or just pretty good plays, but something that's you know, stands out a bit. And I think that helps build credibility, too, that, you know, you're into the game. Um, you're, you're fine with being there. Uh, you're enjoying what you're doing. Um, you're watching these guys' efforts out here. Um, it's not just the job for you. Um, and that builds some credibility for you as well and helps with the relationship if somebody does that. That can be done as well when you're working the bases. You know, if somebody makes a great play right by you and you happen to be jogging back to your position, you're like, hey, nice, nice play, great tag, hey, great throw, just something like that. Um, I think that's okay. Just every once in a while if you do that because, you know, they understand that uh, – you're happy to be there. And that's an important message to relay to players and coaches as well. Another important thing to keep in mind is um, the concept of respect. All right. Remember back when you were an athlete, if you were, which I assume a lot of you guys were, uh, you wanted the adults in the situation um, or just the people in charge, whether you're all adults or not, to treat you with some respect. Um, as long as they do, of course you can do that, but you have to have the upper hand. You have to be the adult always in a situation. Sometimes we have to be the adult with a coach, right? Cause they're acting a bit childish at times. So, you know, the way you say something to a player, it's easier to talk down to a player because, you know, they're not the coach or they might be younger or those kind of things. Some guys seem to have that, um, that issue. Um, if you can just kind of follow the golden rule, right? Treat others as you'd want to be treated, that kind of thing. Talk to them the way you'd want to be treated if you were the hitter or if you were the catcher or if you were the fielder or the runner or whoever it was. And, of course, you can apply that to coaches as well. That'll go a long way so that people don't think that you have, like, an attitude, even if the kid maybe kind of deserves it. 
Um, you, you've got to take the, the upper road on situations like that. And that will definitely help your, um, your respect that you garner from these players and coaches out there if you treat them with uh, respect. I, I frequently say please when I'm saying something. Um, like, for example, if they're getting baseballs for you, um, if you're working a collegiate game or something and they have extra baseballs and you ran out because of all the foul balls or whatever, can I get three baseballs, please? That's the way I always say it. I've seen plenty of guys, three baseballs, they just kind of yell it, and they're just kind of rude about it. Um, those things, they add up, man. Uh, if, if you do stuff like that, if I, you know, say something or direct something to a player or coach or something like that, I always say please uh, and, and thank you. If they give me basis, thank you. Appreciate it. You know, that kind of stuff. You should be cordial out there. I do it because I expect them to be that way to me, and I do see that reciprocated um, through them. And um, you're setting the tone. That's the way I want my baseball field to be when I'm working the game. I want people to be working hard, uh, playing by the rules, um, and being sportsmanlike and being cordial to people. I'm saying uh, uh, you're, you're playing hard to win. Everybody's trying to do their thing and trying to get ahead of the other guys. But you're doing it in a respectful way. And uh, I expect them to be that way to me and to the other players out there as well. You know, because we're, we're playing a game here. We're not trying to be a bunch of jerks. All right. So that starts with you as umpire, especially when you're working the plate to keep those things in mind. With that also, you know, you got to enjoy what you're doing out there. If you're doing those things, I think that makes it more enjoyable. It helps you to look more interested in things. It helps you to keep working hard. You're working hard for them. You're hustling. Um, you know, those things um, show up and players and coaches and, and the fans, everybody notices that you're working hard, not over hustling, not fake hustling. I'm not talking about that. You're doing the things you're supposed to do and you're giving the same effort every game, no matter what the level is that you're working. And then finally, last thing on this is just honesty. Honesty is, re is really the only policy here. You know, under no circumstances should you try to, um, you know, fib your way out of some dilemma, right? Others generally will appreciate your honesty and they'll go easier on you if you're just, you know, telling them what you saw and what happened, all right? If you're willing to admit that you committed an error, a lot of times they'll respect you for that and, you know, things will work out better. Now, if you keep doing it over and over again, then that's going to be a major problem. But, you know, you can't just try to make something up on the fly. You got you to gotta do what you can do and do it the right way and do it honestly. It's like, um, like a bank account. You put deposits in. If you're honest, you're working hard, you're doing the things you're supposed to do, then if you do happen to kind of mess something up a little bit and you have to make a withdrawal, then you get a little bit of leeway. But if you're doing all these other things that are not good and you're making lots of withdrawals and, and having some issues out there communication-wise, then when something does hit the fan, you're going to have some problems. Anyway, those are a few things to think about when it comes to uh, dealing with players. Considering the drawing the line situation from last week, I think this is a good time to discuss social media guidelines and uh, things that all of us should be trying to follow. NASA just uh, published their social media guidelines, and this would pertain to all officiating organizations and sports, not just umpiring, but certainly would apply to umpiring. So some things to keep in mind. Consider social media communication as public at all times, even if created with private intentions. 
If you're going to use social media in any form, consider your communications may be read by anyone at any time. Um, I know I do this. Uh, I always figure that somebody might be shown something or it might get out there. So if I'm going to write something uh, or say something, then I'm okay with anybody knowing about that. You should do that as well. Another thing, you represent the officiating industry. Your associations, your signers, and your partners act accordingly. Yeah, man, we got to have everybody's back out there. Um, We represent not only ourselves and our families, but everybody that we step on the field with and the people that we're involved with um, in our area. I felt kind of bad, and I talked to some other umpires about this, for the official with the drawing the line situation. Because, you know, the guys are out there with their Pac-12 hats on. And, um, you know, not saying that they did anything wrong, but the Pac-12 kind of gets, you know, thrown under the bus a little bit for some of that stuff. Whereas maybe, I know a lot of conferences have their own conference hats. Um, there's a bunch of them you know, some guys got to buy. Maybe there should just be an NCAA hat for everybody because everybody's kind of in it, right? Um, I, I don't know, something to think about. So another thing, promote officiating in a positive light and with a general feeling of pride and professionalism. You are an ambassador for officiating. I try to do that through this podcast. I try to do that if I am uh, happen to post something on social media. There are a lot of guys, though, that don't, man. They're out there to, I don't know, try to be funny, uh, try to get at somebody, try to be the, uh, the squeaky wheel out there and show how much they know, uh, try to put somebody down to try to make themselves look better, I guess. I don't understand it, but there are, unfortunately, a good number of people out there that seem to do that. Anyway, you have a unique access to information. The same ethical restrictions that apply to any form of public speech also applies to social media. It is inappropriate to communicate specifics about your assignments, other officials, conference schools, coaches, players, or any related personnel. Um, I try to talk about things here um, that pertain to me, but if you haven't noticed... um, hopefully you will, that I try not to mention specific people if I can help it. Um, You try to talk about things in a general way because you certainly don't want to throw anybody under the bus or something like that. And um, if you do talk about it, it's got to be well after the fact, Um, you know, or or you just you got to use some generalities when you do that. Because, um, you know, there's a certain amount of privacy out there, I guess. And also, you just don't want things coming back at you for something that you said, because we're not out there you know, talking to the media or giving interviews and things like that. That's not our job, right? Anyway, do not engage in specific play and or ruling evaluation commentary, whether it be of a game you worked, one that you witnessed, or in general about the impact of officials in any sport, sporting event. You know, <clears throat> that's a tough thing, man. There's a lot of guys out there from you know, professionals all the way down to the lower amateurs that will comment on what's going on in all kinds of sports. You see it all the time. Um, if you, you know, to me, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it, right? Um, it's better to keep yourself out of those situations if you can, okay? <clears throat> Talk about it with your um, colleagues and your fellow umpires, but uh, try to keep it off of social media as much as possible. 
Um, communication among officials for learning purposes should be done privately and not through the use of social media. Be mindful that email and other forms of direct communication can be made public. And that's definitely true. I know I'm on several like Facebook groups and different things, and um, sometimes there'll be a video and we'll take a look at what's going on there. Um, I think that there's a point where that's okay, but um, you don't want to be, again, I mean, when you're throwing people under the bus or something, that's where it really kind of goes over the line. Um, You can take a look at it and and see what you think about a situation, but, uh, you know, there's got to be that line that you draw, right? It's a tricky situation, but something to think about. I don't think people are going to stop doing that just because they put out, you know, the guidelines that they have. Um, But uh, I guess we just have to teach people better on uh, where the line is. Another thing, be very sparing in the sharing of your personal information, including photos. Adjust security settings accordingly. Report fake profiles or post to the appropriate authorities, governing bodies in a timely fashion. Yeah, I mean, you know, just like anything in social media, there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on out there. So you got to be uh, wary of that. And certainly um, certain photos you, you wouldn't want to put out there, especially if it's a recent contest that you officiated, right? And then in general, just follow specific conference school or governing body social media policies. I mean, sometimes different organizations uh, put specific things in in place that they want their umpires or other officials to follow and make sure that you follow those. I mean, I guess, you know, this, these are things I have to try to consider uh, when doing this podcast. Um, and it's something that I keep in the back of my mind every time I'm talking about certain things. I mean, I can talk about things that are you know, more general, and I do at times frequently, but uh, there are times where it is helpful and, and interesting um, and engaging to um, talk about a specific play that happens. But I guess and more than anything, it has to be done in a more general manner and certainly not be naming people or schools or whatever might be um, more specific to the situation. So some things to keep in mind in this age of communication that we live in, uh, as it, you know, there's always something that we've got to keep in mind as far as being an umpire out there. It's not just the balls and strikes and safes and outs. It's other things as well, right? Have you been doing some inventory on your uniforms before the season starts here or as it's starting? How are your shirts looking? Are they looking faded at all? Especially those black shirts. They seem to do that frequently if you're out in the sun a lot. Uh, here in Michigan, that's usually only in the summertime. But uh, you got to make sure that if they're looking a little purplish or something like that, that uh, they kind of get retired, right? Same thing goes with your umpiring pants. we got to look sharp out there. Make sure that uh, your pants are in good shape and don't have any major flaws to them and that you get them pressed or iron them and press them yourself if you have the abilities to do that we should look good every time we walk out on the field right our shirts should look good our pants should look good our shoes should be cleaned hopefully shine too but at least cleaned Um, our hats should look good sometimes our hats start getting a little faded as well or dirty in some way and you can clean hats. Um, you can even, uh, there's different uh, things you can buy to put them in the, in the 
washing machine, or you can just toss it in there. If it's an old hat and you're thinking, man, this thing almost needs to just go, you give it a go. Just throw it in there with some clothes and see what happens. Spray it down or something a little bit. But the other thing to think about is uh, creasing your hats. Do you crease your hats in more of the military style? Uh, there's videos that you can find on YouTube that show you how to crease an umpire hat if you don't know how to do that. Um, and that looks a little more professional. Uh, so that's something to consider as well. Do you use a different size bill for doing the plate or for doing the bases? Uh, I know some guys that don't. They're you know skilled, I guess, and able to uh, get their mask over any size bill of their hat. Uh, I use a smaller size bill uh, on my hat for my plate jobs and have the bigger bill when I'm working on the bases. So something to consider as well. Because if you don't um, have the ability to pull your mask off with your left hand uh, without your hat falling off, that's something definitely you need to uh, practice a little bit, right? So those are a few things to think about as far as uniforms and stuff. I've had some questions and stuff about uh, equipment. So I'll just tell you what I use and what I think about the different equipment. I know there's lots of choices out there, and I'm not saying that what I do is the best thing, but... It works for me, so that's that's all I can tell you, right? So as far as pants and stuff, um, right now I, I really like the Smitty pants. Um, I know they're the little shinier type or whatever, but I think they look pretty sharp and they wear well, and um, I think they clean up well, and, and I like those. I've, I've had Jerry Davis pants in the past, and I like those as well. I've had some poly wool ones. I believe those are from Honigs at some point. And those are fine, but I don't know. I wasn't a huge fan of those. The regular Honig's pants, I've, I've had those. That's what I started out wearing uh, for several years. And they seem to wear out pretty quickly and fade very quickly. So the Smitty doesn't seem to fade that quickly from what I've noticed. And usually, if you, whatever brand you want, if you get the poly wool, they seem to um, hold their color a bit longer than others as well. Shirts. I don't really, it doesn't seem to matter to me what brand shirt you get. I mean, if you're out in the sun and stuff, they're going to start fading, especially the black ones, right? And uh, so you just got to watch that and you got to replace them every every so often, whenever they start fading a little bit. If you're working in the cold weather like we do here in Michigan, then, you know, they're not fading too much. But you're still out in the sunshine, so it gets a little bit of that. As far as uh, masks and such, um I, I'm a well all my equipment I'm a big force three fan um I've had other stuff in the past but I like I like the force three stuff um I've had two force three masks I think I maybe have mentioned it on on another another podcast at some point but um I, I think that they've saved me from a couple concussions and I know there's other masks out there that maybe could have done the same thing but I'm a believer in the Force 3 mask, and I think it does um, reduce the chance of getting a concussion. And uh, like all masks, you should try to change the pads on them frequently. Sometimes they say once a year, especially if you take a big hit. But I know that there's a lot of people that like the Wilson masks, the the titanium one and uh, and the Dynalite aluminum one and, and such as well. Um, and those are good from what I hear. Um, uh, I'm not a, a hockey-style mask fan but um if that's what you like that's fine obviously that can give you more protection um 
especially on the top and side of your head and everything. Those are a little more pricey. I know Force 3 and Wilson, they have those and, and they get good reviews and everything if you like that. I like more of the traditional style. I think it looks better when you have a hat on you, you know, and you're able to make your signals, you know, with your mask in your hand rather than trying to carry that bucket around. Um, I, I just don't think that has quite as good a look, but, you know, to each their own. I know it's becoming more common uh, for plate umpires to wear like an umpire helmet. Um, I've never done that. Obviously, that could give you more protection. I can't say I've ever gotten hit on top or the back of the head, but I guess it's possible bat could get you or a ball could get you in some way or another. But if you're squared up and, and doing things properly, the chance of that happening I don't think are, are very good at all. But uh, that's another option out there, something to look into, especially if you've had some concussion problems. Because, man, your head, your head's the most important thing out there. And we can break our arm or, or whatever, mess up our leg. That, that's not cool, but, you know, you'll, you'll survive. But if your brain's messed up because of a concussion from some shot that you took, you don't want that. So do whatever you got to do to protect yourself. I think it's worthwhile to look into things and maybe spend a little bit more money because you get a little bit more protection. I don't think it's good necessarily to spend the money because you think it looks cooler, the mask or this or that. And that's up to you, I guess. But I think it definitely is worthwhile to spend more money because you have better protection for your head. Uh, that's the most important thing that we have out there. As far as uh, chest protectors, a few years ago, I bought the Force 3 Unequal Kevlar chest protector. And I, I love the thing. I mean, it, it is Kevlar. <laughs> it's like wearing a bulletproof vest out there. I've taken some shots, some pretty hard shots off of that vest. And uh, you don't feel anything. I, I feel like I feel like somebody could shoot a low caliber gun at me, and it probably wouldn't go through it. So, um, yeah, it's almost three hundred dollars for it. I think it's about two hundred and eighty bucks for the new newer version. But I think it's worth it, and I think it's going to last a long time. Mine still is in very good shape, and uh, you know I try to clean it and keep it as you know as good as I can. But I think it should last quite a long time. I know there are a lot of umpires that I've worked with that uh, really stand by the Wilson uh, protectors, uh, chest protectors. There's the platinum one, and then there's the pro gold, and they really like those and and feel the protection. The big thing is, you know, whatever your body size is, uh, some of, you know, they come in different sizes. Does it protect you um, in your stomach area? Does it fit snugly so that it's tight under your neck? Uh, that's the most important thing. Sometimes guys get them and they, uh, it's too loose and think, oh, that's just a little area there by my collarbone, up by my neck or whatever. The ball finds you, man. So you got to have that snug, as snug as you possibly can uh, while you're back there. So make sure that, you know, if you're looking at a new chest protector, that you get one that fits you properly and as tight as possible and protects as much of that front part of your body as you can, the shoulders, Obviously, your your upper chest and even your stomach. I mean, because sometimes we'll take a shot down there if you can get that. I know when we squat down, sometimes that's a little protected, but, you know, the ball finds you. So that's something to keep in mind with the chest protectors. As far as shin guards, again, I'm a Force 3 guy. I love their ultimate umpire shin guards. I think they're about 120 bucks, so they're, they're definitely much more than, like, the Wilsons are about 70 bucks, I think. Um, and so are some of the other ones. And those are fine. I mean, 
you know, if you take a shot off your shin, it's not going to kill you. It's just going to hurt a little bit. But I've taken some shots off of these um, Force 3, and I don't feel a thing. I mean, sometimes it's hard, too, and I'll have a catcher turn around. You okay? Yep. Shin guard's working great, man. So I pay for it, you know. So they, they cover your, your ankle well. They, they're pretty low profile. Um, they come in different sizes. So, again, make sure you get the right size and everything. But uh, they have the Kevlar on the back of them and everything. So I, I definitely stand by by those. Um, if you're looking for some new shin guards, it's going to last a while. The thing about shin guards, they get worn out. You know, they rub on your shoes and everything like that. That's always kind of annoying. But, but um, you know, paying for the Kevlar, I think, is worth it. Because, man, you don't want to feel like you're going to get uh, some problem with your, your leg or your knee or something. So something to look in there, too, if... Uh, you're looking for some new shin guards. But then again, you know, feel free to go with the Wilson Platinum. Uh, those are nice shin guards as well. I, I know guys that really like those. So to each their own, I guess, right? Another thing to think about is ball bags. If you um, are in an association where you wear black, I definitely think black ball bags, you know, are the best. I always wear two because I think it just balances things out, looks a little bit better. High school ball here, we wear navy um, or uh, like powder blue, either one. You don't wear black. So you're allowed to wear navy ball bags or gray ball bags. And I have suggested to guys that you wear navy because they don't fade as much. And the gray, I mean, it's not going to match your pants. It's going to be very hard to wear your pants. And hopefully you're also wearing charcoal gray pants not Heather Gray pants. I know the softball umpires can wear those, and maybe they, unless they require you to. But if you have the option, the charcoal gray, I think, looks 100 times better. But anyway, don't get gray ball bags if you have, if you have an option because they're going to clash with your pants, and it's going to look stupid and very unprofessional. So get the dark color, all right? Get navy or black, whatever. Uh, obviously, you got to have, like, I've got my black ball bags and my navy ball bags for whatever type of game I'm working. And you got to wear those. So keep those in mind, too. I mean, the way you look when you walk out there, looking sharp, looking professional, first thing people see, especially if they've never seen you before. So you got to look good. Um, you know, and keep that going. So it's something to, to think about. Some guys, they think it's not that big a deal, but it is a big deal. All right. So those are a few things to think about as far as, uh, uniforms and uh, anything that you might be trying to replace uh, for this upcoming season. Keep those things in mind. Let's talk about getting paid and how to handle it when you're not getting paid or when it's been too long, at least in your estimation, for your payment to have been rendered. Uh, in all the years I've been umpiring so far, I've never not gotten paid for an umpiring job that I've done. Now, granted, there have been some times where it's been a month or more before I got paid for something, but I always got paid in the end. So I guess I feel confident that I'm going to get paid. I know that there are stories out there, and I've heard them from people in my area, and I'm sure across the country and across the world, there are stories of people that work games and didn't get paid by un unscrupulous kind of people. Frequently, that seems to happen maybe during a tournament 
or during the summertime. But if you're working high school games or collegiate games, you get paid, all right? You don't always get paid when you want to get paid, but eventually you get paid. The big thing to remember when you, you know, and I'm, I'm going to be talking here initially about, um, you know, school-related types of games for us amateurs. You don't want to be ticking people off, all right? I know it's annoying. You know, it's been two weeks, let's say, and you haven't been paid, and you really want to, you really want to give it to somebody. You really want to tell them, all right? Usually, there's no spite that was involved. They're not trying to, you know, irritate you and make it take forever. A lot of times it's an administrative kind of thing, especially the bigger the school that you're working for. And that could be high schools or colleges because some some high schools are, you know, the district itself is bigger than a community college or something. All right. So you've got to give it a little bit of time. I'd say at least a week, probably two weeks um, before you start, you know, calling people or emailing people or texting people or things like that. The way I look at it, you should try to take care of it yourself first in a cordial, professional way. Um, you find out who the uh, the person that's actually issuing the payment is, who's who's the pay the payer. All right, you look it up on the, a website or some other place that you might have that information, and you either uh, call them or you send them a polite email saying that you worked such and such game on such and such date. And you have yet to see uh, the payment yet, and you are wondering when it might be issued. And then, if you do that, they usually will get back to you in a reasonable amount of time and tell you what's going on. Maybe it slipped by them somehow. That that happens. You know, people are, are people, right? And they make mistakes. Uh, so they will get on it and get it to you. If it's a check through some kind of institution... Sometimes that easily can take two weeks. If you are working the game and it's kind of the the bad time frame, you know, like the, the payroll is on the one Friday and you worked it on um, the, the Saturday and then you got to wait two whole weeks before they issue checks again because sometimes that's the way they work it. So if you know that, you just kind of got to deal with it and that's what it is. You usually don't get paid, you know, right at the site. Sometimes we do. Sometimes they'll pay you cash. Sometimes you get your check right there. That's awesome if you do. But we know that that is very rare nowadays. Usually um, we see a lot of schools now paying through Arbiter Pay. I know we have that a lot for our high schools and colleges here in my area. And I'm sure that that's uh, common in a lot of areas out there. They can pay those as soon as they want to. They could pay it, you know, you're getting in your car driving home, boom, you got paid on your Arbiter Pay for that game. Um, so they don't, they don't have to send you a check, you know, so there's no postage there. Um, so they should be able to do that pretty quickly. So if if it is an arbiter pay thing, I I still say you give them five to seven days before you start annoying them. You don't want to annoy them. You know, if you're asking them like the next day or two days later, um, that could be a little annoying. You don't want to be that person that, that they complain to back to your assigner or supervisor. All right. So you give them enough time, a reasonable amount of time, or you, you've sent them, you know, it's been two weeks or something. You sent them an email or you left a voice message or you tried to call somebody and nothing happens. Then it's time to talk to your assigner or your supervisor who might have an in with the people 
that are paying you. Tell them the situation and hopefully they'll be able to help you as well. But first try to take care of it yourself um, and give it a reasonable amount of time. And if you do have to talk to somebody or you do send a message to somebody, make sure that it's that is professional and nice and you're not being a jerk about it because that's only going to hurt you in the long run. So those are a few things about like schools and stuff. Summertime, you know, if you're working tournaments or other types of summer travel ball or whatever it might be, you know, there are some, um, there are some shady people out there. So obviously you just got to be a good judge of character and know if somebody's going to pay you, uh, the way that they said they're going to pay you. Um, and that's usually where I've heard of uh, situations where people didn't get paid. It's, it's something to do with summer ball or some kind of youth ball or something like that. Um, you just got to do your homework. Ask around. Um, talk to your fellow umpires that maybe work for people. Make sure that they're on the up and up. And, uh, you know, ask how you're going to get paid. If it's going to be check, cash, you know, arbiter pay, whatever it might be. So keep those things in mind if you're working summer ball. I mean, it's always great to work summer ball. It's a great way to get better. It's like working another season. But uh, certainly you don't want to be doing that for free. You know, I hope that uh, all of us, when we umpire, we do it because we, we like the sport and we like the game and we like being out on the field. And there's a little part of us that would almost do it for free, you know. But uh, we do it for the money. So we want to make sure that we get paid as well. But we don't want to be that um, money grabber kind of person that, that it just seems like that's the only reason that you're doing it. It's got to be professional. All right. So keep those things in mind as uh, the seasons are starting here and you're looking to make sure your bank account is getting filled with the money that you have earned so far. So for 2020, Major League Baseball has a few rule changes that I think it might be interesting to talk about for a few minutes. The Probably the most significant one, uh, at least in my mind, is the pitchers now must face three batter minimum or end an inning. So the rule, which took effect here during spring training games like um, well, it will take effect for spring training games as of March 12th, uh, requires a pitcher to face a minimum of three batters or to end an inning, whichever comes first. So one of Major League Baseball's goals is to decrease overall game times, which are very long, um, well, you know, three and a half hours roughly. <clears throat> and the league identifies pitching changes as a significant culprit, which it is. All right. So baseball's idea here is to reduce pitching changes, you know, via the pitching mandatory minimums. The rule affords an ex uh, an exception to injury, which is a good idea, right? If a pitcher is injured or falls ill, you know, prior to completing the three batter or end of inning obligation, uh, such incapacitation shall afford the team the ability to remove the pitcher uh, at any time. Uh, whether a pitcher is truly incapacitated or unable to continue is, of course, up to the discretion of the umpire uh, and umpire chief mainly. All right. So another potential loophole is ejection, right? Uh, if a pitcher is ejected, for instance, 
for intentionally pitching at a batter or something like that, arguing balls and strikes, something. Um, that pitcher will not be required or forced to face the subsequent, uh, you know, hitter number three or or end the inning or something like that. <clears throat> Why would they be? They're out of the game, right? I know in games that I work, um, pitching changes are one of the biggest things that slow games down, especially mid inning pitching changes. So I think that this could be an effective rule. Um, I know there are specialists out there, uh, a left-hander that always just comes in and faces a a specific left-hander in a certain part of the game. I guess that uh, that's going to have to change a little bit. But I think that this this might work. This might be an interesting rule change. Some of these other rule changes that they have come up with the last year or two, I'm not real sure about, but uh, this one seems like it could be okay. Another one is the reduction in challenge time. All right, so pace of play thing um, pertaining to the replay review regulations. In 2020, a manager has up to 20 seconds from the conclusion of a play to decide whether or not to challenge the umpire's call. Uh, This is decreased from last year's time of 30 seconds. All right. Um, Seen as umpires did occasionally have to enforce the 30-second clock by denying challenge requests by some managers. And, of course, in a few instances, they had to eject those managers for uh, arguing that enforcement. Uh, one might surmise that uh, this will also have some disputes in 2020 with a one-third reduction in the amount of time allotted for them to make a decision. Uh, in general, um, I think that that is a, a good thing. I mean, sometimes it does seem like it takes a little long there. Guys shouldn't be able to make a decision if they think it was that close. You know, they're just sitting there trying to get a look at replay or whatever. So they should just be able to make that decision. I wonder if this will transfer down at some point to NCAA baseball with their replays and and allowing people a certain amount of time to make a decision as well. All right. So seems like a reasonable thing. You know, I don't know how much 10 seconds here and 10 seconds there really matters for a game. I mean, let's say you had three replays. Wow, we saved 30 seconds. I mean, big, big deal, right? But uh, the pitching change, uh, three minimum end of uh, inning uh, rule is a little bit better rule, I think. Uh, one other rule change they had that is not necessarily that important to umpires, but I guess kind of interesting, is that uh, rosters from opening day through August 31st, will be expanded from 25 to 26 players. And then September rosters must have 28 players, a maximum of 14 pitchers, um, subject to, you know, two-player designation type guys, right? Um, Position players are permitted to pitch only in extra innings or any game with a six-plus run differential. And pitchers... Pitchers' injured list reinstatements cannot occur sooner than 15 days after the initial placement on the injured list. Sometimes guys were able to swap guys in and out from their minor leagues by putting a guy on an injured list and keep him on their active roster. So, you know, it's not just the Astros, I guess. It's everybody that tries to skew the system a little bit. So, I don't know, some interesting uh, changes there. We'll see how that plays out as far as, you know, teams in the playoffs and only being able to have certain players available to them. So those are some of the Major League Baseball uh, rule changes for this year that we'll be 
seen on the on the televised games that we'll all be watching and the few games that maybe some of us get to go to. This week's umpire spotlight is going to focus on dead ball era American League umpire Bill Deneen. Uh, Bill Deneen was born April 5th, 1876, um, and was an American League right-handed pitcher for 12 seasons from 1898 to 1909. And then after his tenure as uh, a pitcher, he was an American League umpire from 1909 until 1937. So he was employed by the American League and Major League Baseball for 40 straight years. Deneen was from the Syracuse, New York area and is best known for his performance, his record-setting performance, during the 1903 World Series. Uh, In that World Series, the hard-throwing right-hander, he won three games for the Boston Americans, who would eventually become the Red Sox, um, against the Pittsburgh Pirates, including the first two shutouts in World Series history. Uh, For the series... um, Deneen struck out 28 batters in 35 innings, including Hannes Wagner, to end the series. His triumph in the inaugural World Series proved to be the highlight of his 12-year career, which saw him win 170 games but lose 177. After three consecutive 21 seasons, um, which he tossed 108 complete games and 113 starts, he was a bit overworked and uh, lost his effectiveness effectiveness and started to fade uh, from the scene. So shortly following um, his retirement at age 33, he, um, he realized that his pitching arm was, you know, gone. And though he might come back on, for an occasional contest, you know, with a little rust, he could never really pitch the ball the same way. So he had to figure out something else to do with his life, especially if he wanted to have a life in baseball. So since he didn't want to leave, you know, baseball, he basically... Um, asked American League President Ben Johnson if um, he could become an umpire. So he applied to do that, and Johnson gave him a one-month trial. His uh, final game as a player was August 26, 1909, and less than three weeks later, on September 11th, Deneen joined the American League umpiring staff. The one-month trial obviously was pretty good and turned it into a 28-year job that he held until 1937. So... Deneen became the first person to play in a World Series and umpire in a World Series, and he's still the only person to pitch a shutout and umpire in the series. He umpired in eight different World Series, 1911, 1914, 1916, 1920, 1924, 1926, 1932, uh, and also 1929. Skip that one. That um, ties the record that Tom Conley set with eight World Series. He was the crew chief for the 1914, 26, 30, and 32 series, and he was also selected to work in the first All-Star game in 1933, calling balls and strikes for the first half of the game before giving way to Bill Clem. They switched it up. They rotated the umpires around during the game. Kind of strange. He was the third base umpire for uh, the game on June 23, 1917, in which Ernie Shore replaced Babe Ruth with no one out and a runner on first base in the first inning. After Ruth was ejected for um, arguing 
the cause of plate umpire Brick Owens, and then striking Owens. Ruth had a temper when he was younger. Anyway, Shore came in and retired the runner, as well as all 26 batters he faced. Now that's a crazy, that's a crazy game. Deneen was also the plate umpire on May 18, 1912, when the Detroit Tigers staged a one-game walkout in protest of Ty Cobb's suspension, using replacement players, including team coaches as well as college players in attendance. The Tigers lost 24-2 to the Philadelphia Athletics. Uh, Deneen was um, umpiring, uh, was on the field for Babe Ruth's called shot in the 1932 World Series. And six years earlier, he was the umpire who called Ruth out for attempting to steal second against Grover Cleveland Alexander to end the 1926 World Series. Among his other uh, umpiring highlights, Deneen was uh, the home plate umpire for Babe Ruth's 60th home run in 1927. I already mentioned the first All-Star game in 33. He also was the umpire for five no-hitters. Um, and uh, he's the only person to have thrown a no-hitter in the major leagues and then was an umpire and called a game for a no-hitter as well. That's quite a feat. What kind of reputation did Deneen have? Well, let's just see what this letter here by Ben Johnson to Babe Ruth um, says about that. So Deneen had a... A confrontation with Babe Ruth in 1922. That was a bad year for Babe Ruth, by the way. On June 19th, the outfielder got into an argument with him. And during the next day's game, he again insulted Deneen. And in response, AL President Van Johnson on June 21st sent a letter to Ruth that read in part, I was keenly disappointed and amazed when I received umpire Deneen's report recounting your shameful and abusive language to that official in the game at Cleveland last Monday. Bill Deneen was one of the greatest pitchers the game ever produced. With common consent, we had we hand to him today the just tribute. He is one of the cleanest and most honorable men baseball ever fostered. Your conduct at Cleveland on Monday was reprehensible to a great degree, shocking to every American mother who permits her boy to go to a professional game. The American League cares nothing for Ruth. The individual player means nothing to the organization. When he steps on the ball field, he is subject to our control and discipline. Again, you offended on Tuesday. You branded umpire Deneen as yellow. This is the most remarkable declaration a modern ball player has made. Deneen stands out in the history of the game as one of the most courageous players we have ever had. If you could match up to his standard, you would not be in the uh, the trial you occupy today. Coupled with your misconduct on Monday, you doubled the penalty on Tuesday. You are hereby notified of your suspension for five days without salary. It seems the period has arrived when you should allow some intelligence to creep into a mind that has plainly been warped. Wow. Okay. So that's the way we want our supervisors and assigners to back us. So if you're a supervisor and a signer out there, that's what we that's what we need, man. If we're in the right and somebody wrongs us, you better be writing them letters like that. Anyway, that's a good place to stop for this week's uh, Umpire Spotlight, Build an E. Well, that concludes another episode of the Hammer and Umpire podcast. 
It's that time of year again where the weather here in the cold weather states like Michigan, where I am from, goes back and forth. Some days it's like 18 degrees and snowing and windy and doesn't seem like baseball's going to be coming anytime soon. And then there's days like we've had the last couple days where it's in the 40s and the sun is actually shining, which it doesn't always do here in the winter. And there's a little meltdown and that smell in the air that just smells like baseball. That's what it is. It makes you feel like you should be out on a baseball field calling a game. So that'll be coming soon enough. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. I've got a lot of games on my schedule, and hopefully most of them get played, and the weather is not as awful as it was last year. I suggest everyone continue to try to get ready for their season, get some exercise, do some walking, do some cardio, do some stretching, get mentally ready, go see some pitches, uh, make sure you're looking over your rule books and your mechanics manuals, and get yourself set for a great 2020. Until then, keep calling strikes.